Welcome to a new episode of What Exactly Am I Watching Here, a proud member of the Overthink Podcast Network. I'm your host for now, Jason Helms, and I'm joined by my good bud, Dominic Lang. Say hi, Dom. Hi, Dom. Good work. You're still with me. That's good. Before we begin, a quick introduction to the show. What Exactly Am I Watching Here is a podcast that features an expert, myself, and a novice. Myself. Watching one of the great shows of television history. For now, our show is the cult favorite, Twin Peaks. We're diving into Twin Peaks, The Return. We're going to be taking The Return one episode at a time. So without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, And I I should say, uh, Dom, you may know this already, but uh, Mm. I can kind of say whatever I want, and I might be able to even curse on this episode because this is the first episode that we're recording where I have tenure. Whoa! Wait a minute! Is this a big announcement for you? This is a big one. Soak it in. Oh, I am bathing in your tenure right now. Mm. It's so good. It is. It is so nice. It's better than Old Spice. <laughs> doesn't quite get you clean, but it smells okay. Yeah, it does. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. So I thought I'd just announce that uh, yeah. as, uh, with the rest of the introductions. But enough about me. Let's, yeah. uh, let's get into the real uh, professor, uh, David Lynch. Yes. Uh, where did we mm. leave off? Yeah, so we left off. Uh, after part four, we got to see Dougie Jones's home life, Janie E. and the House of Dougie. Uh, we had a prolonged, prolonged, prolonged breakfast scene. Kind of hilarious in retrospect. And we had the FBI crew, Agent Cole, Agent Rosenfield, and Agent Preston. Damien Preston, uh, interview Evil Coop, and we left with Agent Cole saying, I don't understand this situation at all. And then looking directly at the camera and winking and saying, get it? And neither do you get it? Get it? And then he and Rosenfield just locked arms and danced off together. It was beautiful. And then we faded the black, and that was the show. Yep. But yeah, so... It worries me that Gordon Cole doesn't understand the situation. Mm. And I think uh, there was a review I read of this particular part of this particular episode. And it really, the, the untetheredness, they call it, the untetheredness of Coop really, I think it almost, it, it infects or permeates the rest of the episode. Because without Cooper as an anchor, there's no kind of like talisman or guide through the weirdness mm-hmm. or through the unsettling elements of it. Like it's it's all unpredictable. It's all unnerving. It's all unsettling. And so there's nothing to hold on to. Yeah. And this when this came out, remember, we're in the first summer of the Trump presidency and um A lot of people responded to it that way as reflecting our own feelings of being untethered, of the world not quite seeming real, and of saying, I don't understand the situation at all. Yeah. It it doesn't seem right. And there's a real sense that that evil has triumphed, uh, that we feel in Twin Peaks at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe in a way, a sense that we haven't before. Right. No, definitely. It it feels irrevocable or feels like there's no turning back from what's transpired. The evil Cooper in prison looking, you know, nice callback to a mirror 
but that flashback to Bob and the the change in his face, so creepy, so so creepy. That was one of the more just like genuine unsettling moments yep. uh, of the show recently. Th- that just ah, boo. Um, that was really disturbing. The, I think, and also kind of bookended with whatever evil Cooper is able, is able to do with the phone call. Mm-hmm. So basically by dialing a particular number is basically able to throw the entire prison into chaos and stop the chaos at his leisure. Yep. And so it's almost just kind of like giving the warden a taste of what true power looks like or kind of like what domain looks like. And it's like that presence and permeation of evil is something that we're seeing very clearly on this show, uh, particularly in, in the return. Yeah. And, and that show did not, it didn't get him out of prison, right? Mm -mm. It wasn't, it wasn't him breaking out, but it was, him just showing the warden, I can leave anytime I want. Hmm. I'm in control here. Yeah, You're not in control. Yeah. Which seems to be the entire feeling of Twin Peaks right now is that the audience is very much not in control. And we hope someone is. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Uh, some connections starting to happen. Uh, for me, at least. Uh, so, last part we discussed when... <laughs> When Cooper had a cup of coffee, it seemed that he momentarily woke up or momentarily kind of made the connection of who he was uh, in his his past experiences. And it, it seems like certain phrases, certain words were starting to jog his memory uh, in this episode. And there's a moment, and this is all credit to Kyle McLaughlin as an actor, but when when uh, I think it's Tom Sizemore's character is lying about an account or kind of feeding his boss in BS. It almost, I don't know if I made this up, but it seems like a light or something flashes across his face. I saw it too. Almost like a reflection off of uh, someone's watch or something. Yeah. And you see it like, I don't know if it's something in his eyes or his jaw, but definitely in his voice, his register, like it drops down and he says, he's lying. And it was like, it was Special Agent Dale Cooper in the flesh right there. And then it was gone. Yeah. And, and so that, that has me curious as to, um, it belies a method to mm-hmm. this character. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, there's some thought into how he wakes up. I'm just going to keep using the phrase wake up, waking up. Cause it, I, you know, we talked last time about either being the presentness or not present of this character. It just seems like Agent Cooper's asleep. Yeah. No, I think that works. He's not conscious. He's not. He's impaired in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that makes complete sense. Yeah. But, oh, that's that's a great scene too. Um, when he just looks at Sizemore and says he's lying. Um, yeah. Oh man. Uh, and, and I, I really enjoy those scenes in the, uh, insurance, uh, office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing to say about Kyle's performance is of course that he's evil coop as well. And yet 
it is so easy to dissociate the two characters. Mm. There's no confusion between the two. Uh, and I think a lot of that is McLaughlin's performance. And he's even presenting Evil Coop, especially in episode four, as impaired in some way. Yeah. Uh, as he, he presents Evil Coop trying to act like good Coop, but, but not being able to pull it off. Like, that's, that's really solid. Mm-hmm. The fact that we just buy it automatically is, again, testament to that man's, uh, that man's acting. So there's, there's something to the way he holds his jaw. Um, yes. if you go back all the way to the end of the original twin peaks and when he looks in the mirror, you can see it in his jaw that he's evil. And I don't know what that is, but there, there's something. And the fact that he remembered it is amazing, uh, for mm-hmm. 25 years and just stored that and said, Oh yeah, yeah. When I'm Dale Cooper, but evil, this is what I do. Yeah. So taking a left turn into some, some twin peaks mythos. Yeah. For a moment. Uh, the fingerprints on the male John Doe from part one, you know, the body in the bedroom in, in Buckhorn. Yep. Apparently they match Garland Briggs. Yes. And apparently this is not the first time that there's yeah. been a hit on Garland Briggs. Yeah. And so, of course, when there's something strange in, in the, the neighborhood, neighborhood, who are you going to call? You're going to call Ray. You're going to call Ernie Hudson. That's right. You're going to call a Ghostbuster. Hot damn. I was damn. I was pumped to see see Ernie Hudson show up on Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. But I love it. So, turns out that Garland Briggs in some form or fashion has been winding his way uh 16 times in 25 years that this notice has popped up. So someone's dispatched, someone's coming to Buckhorn to investigate further. So we've got got that element, and what we've also got is Buenos Aires. So well, when well, first before that, where where is Garland Briggs' head? Oh. Because if you've been paying attention, you know. Wait. It's it's Oh, it's in it's floating through another dimension and saying blue rose. You salty son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Sorry. because you have tenure. That's I can right. say I can that because away. you have tenure. That's right. Uh, take us to Buenos Aires. So when, last part when I said, hey, I feel like we've got all the locations down and we're not going to go anywhere. I was totally wrong. Which, you know, hey. Um, so we go to Buenos Aires. The first time we go, we're not told that we go. Right. Because the uh, the addict mom makes a phone call or a text, and it lights up a box. Yep. And that's all we see. Like, okay. And then after Evil Coop makes a phone call, we see that on the other end, like the source of the phone call, we go to Buenos Aires, and then we see that box. So the box is in Buenos Aires. And Evil Coop and the Attic Mom both have a way of contacting this box, mm-hmm. which makes me wonder that the, or makes me think that the mom was placed across the street from Dougie Jones for a reason. That she is potentially some sort of like sentry or watch person uh, 
to keep an eye on Dougie because there are debts. There are people after Dougie trying to kill him, monitor him, uh, something nefarious. And the fact that both of these people are able to contact this box in some way makes me think they are connected almost like like the, the phrase that came to mind was like agents perhaps of the black lodge or representatives of the black lodge. So that was, I think, I think Jason, that was my first fan theory, like my yeah. first honest to God fan theory. So I'll, I'll, I'll put one quick hole in it. I think it was not the addict mom, but the, um, the woman who controls the two hitmen who's sitting oh. in her middle management office. Uh, who who contacted the uh, the black box? So other than Damn. the addict mom, I think you're you're on the right track. Okay, uh, and I do think that you're right that the addict mom has been placed there for a reason. I'm just not sure what that reason is, huh. and by whom? Okay. Because the, the, nothing is without a reason. So just it just needs some some modification. Yes, yes, some yes. alteration. Okay, uh, and I I suspect also that she may be the one who got the job earlier when uh, the character said, "Tell her she's got the job." And, and handed the money off. Because uh, uh, that, that would make sense to me time-wise that it's money then goes to her, she hires the hitman, the hitman kill, trying to kill Dougie Jones. Right? We've got cause and effect. Yeah. But again, like you said, it's Kuleshov effect. We're trying to put together, not based on, you know, follow the money, but just based mm-hmm. on random scenes that we've seen. Yeah. It, okay, who, who did the money go to? Yeah, like, we put together the scenes in one way, but someone else can look at it and put the scenes together in a completely different fashion. Yeah. And you can make up a story like, yeah, it makes sense, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's actually what's happening. Yeah. And I, I have no concern about spoiling this for you because it's kind of like a, uh, the convoluted plot of a Raymond Chandler novel where I can read it another dozen times and I'll never remember what happens. Um, yeah. You know, and I'll enjoy it every time. It's great. Yeah. So trying to make sense of this plot is, constantly giving me a headache but also I, th- I feel like i'm finding a good balance now between the just like kind of blanket enjoyment of the show so kind of just like let it wash over me embrace it for what it is don't try and impose a framework on it um but still trying to put some some thought or rumination into it I feel like there's some some balance there. Um, one of the things, and this may be kind of pulling back to a a broader uh, analysis of Lynch's work, and I noticed it like more so in this episode, and other reviews mentioned this also. Um, but Lynch's treatment of women mm-hmm. in uh, this episode and Twin Peaks in general. Mm-hmm. And I pulled a I pulled a quote just because the reviewer she said it best and best not to try and, and bungle it, but uh, the review said women by and large have things done to them by men in the world of Twin Peaks and do things for men. Rarely do they feel like the centers of their own universes. They're drug addicts, sex workers, girls being abused by their boyfriends, girls being exploited by their boyfriends for money. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, it's emblematic of the way Twin Peaks looks at women far too often. Beautiful to look at, lacking in agency, and hovering uncomfortably on the cusp of male violence. Yep. So, there's, I mean, 
Laura Palmer is, I would say, an outlier, mm-hmm. or she's she stands in contrast to that, in that she finds an agency or has more like she is at the center of the universe. But yeah, I just I read that. I thought it was incredibly insightful, and I just wanted to get your thoughts or kind of impressions. Yeah, I don't. I don't think she's wrong. Um, I do like that she couples it to Twin Peaks, and not necessarily to Lynch. Because if you look at Mulholland Drive, for example, I think that that's a really solid counterexample, and that can lead us to um, say, okay, um, maybe he's doing something. He's saying something about American culture and American media. Similar to, you know, we don't look at the Michael Cera presenting, you know, Wally Brando as like, look at the way that he treats young men. He makes them all act like Marlon Brando. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense in that. We know that he's, he's trying to say something. And so I don't want to give Lynch too many excuses, but instead I want to say, um, yeah, I don't excuse this. And I think that, that we need to, to wait and see if it gets better in some ways before we can really issue a, okay, you're wrong and here's why. But also recognize that I think he's using it for a reason. I, yeah. I don't think that this is just natural Lynch coming out. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think that this is him just being, well, you know, the male gaze. Let's, uh, let's do more male gaze. In other words, he can, he can be doing this and be saying something about the male gaze. It, it's really tough to know how much of that to do for him, though. Uh, because it does descend into this so much. And it's so difficult to think of a female character uh, that has real agency. At the same time, look at our protagonist. If you want to talk about agency, Agent Cooper, how much agency does he have right now? None, I would say. Yeah. So this, there is a real loss of agency throughout, and this has mm. to do with the the darkness. Um, now, of course, we don't get the leering shots of uh, Agent Cooper walking away and just yeah. uh, waggling his butt. So I I do think she has a point. I, I want to lean on her side of it after giving the kind of devil's advocate. Yeah. It feels like Twin Peaks is a show where the analysis is best saved until you've seen all of it, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a more, um, a show like, uh, like a procedural where the stories are told and and ended within its episode. Yeah. And so you can more, more accurately, I would, I would argue judge the, the voice of the, the authorial intent of that episode. Yeah, let's let's look at a couple of quick examples. So one in the in the the list, and I think that you didn't mention this, um, is uh, women who are so ignorant of technology that cell phones terrify them. Yeah, and of course that's Lucy, mm-hmm. and that's that's a to me a hilarious scene because it's Lucy, uh, not because she's a woman. And to drive home the point that it's actually not about women being bad at technology, the next shot after Lucy is freaking out because she cannot understand that cell phones exist is a woman who is controlling some kind of amazing technological contraption with all these video feeds and six different phones and showing you that Twin Peaks is not, you know, a bunch of country bumpkins. They use technology appropriately in their police department. And also she seems to have no trouble using it whatsoever. This is not, it's almost not surprising because she just is using it as well as the sheriff might use his cell phone. Mm -hmm. She's got complete control over this entire system. And seems to be the one really in charge, although they've all been nice to let Lucy still sit up front. Yeah. The, the other one would be uh, Janie E. Naomi Watts. This, I think I told you before that she might be 
My second favorite performance of The Return, um, after Kyle MacLaughlin, who's just doing so much. Mm. And one of the reasons for it is she, especially in these early episodes, plays this kind of nagging wife who really doesn't have much agency and doesn't do much on her own, but is just reacting and stupidly cannot see that her husband has been replaced, that he, yeah. he lost like 40 pounds. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is a different human being. And as the show goes on, I'm interested for you to watch just kind of how we see more and more of her character come out. Uh, because hmm. I, I think she really plays this role well. Yeah. I wouldn't say she's one note at this point, uh, but the range that she's being asked to play at the moment, like it's not a lot. Like she's, she's having to deal with an incapacitated husband or not, not husband, but incapacitated uh, partner at the moment. Yeah. And it's just that over and over again. So yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, is there more, I mean, I, I could argue that it's Naomi Watts who got the job that it's like, it's some sort of like caretaking of Dougie Jones and that guy who gave the money yeah. works for evil coop because he's been commissioned, you know, like watch my, this thing that I made. Yeah. You know, it was like, keep tabs on the, the dummy. That's, that's not a bad read. So I like that. Um, uh, and yeah, so we'll see. Uh, all, all that to say, like, it's difficult for me to, especially when it's more absurdist or, kind of abstract art, it's hard to make that, I guess like that discernment of, is this solely, is this relegated to the art or is this somehow connected to the artist or like the artist's point of view on the world? Right. One more random piece of male violence against women. Uh, Mm. Back in the bang bang club, somebody sits under a no smoking sign and smokes, gives Chad a couple hundred bucks, Chad, Chad, and then assaults uh, a woman who asks him for a light. Yeah. This guy was grade a asshole. Yeah. And the review basically treated it as like the same. I was reading the same one you, you did, which is like, why we don't need some over the top. We, we understand he's a bad guy. You don't need to do all this. And, and I, I'm, I don't disagree. But one thing that the review didn't mention, and you haven't mentioned yet, is do you know that do you know that character's name? I do not know that character's name. So if you read through the credits, you would have noticed a name that would have surprised you. And you can do process of elimination, try to figure out who it is, and the name that jumps out is Richard Horn. Mother, no. So just gonna throw that out there. R- Son, you. <laughs> You gotta watch the credits, man. I got this is the second time the credits have gotten me because it happened with Ronette Pulaski and Purple Rain. Yep. And Richard Horn. Richard Horn. Dick Horn. Yeah. So yep. um Wow. That now that does not solve the problems, but it certainly gets us away from thinking that this is just a throwaway scene of just like, hey, look, more violence. Yeah. Uh they're, they're, the plot is moving. Yeah. Um, a revisit to an earlier theory I had mm-hmm. when I had a theory that Dr. Jacoby was 
painting shovels gold because of Ghostwood development, I was spectacularly wrong. So wrong. I was so wrong. So delightfully wrong. Turns out he's a pirate radio host. Yep. <laughs> oh my gosh. Selling it's... golden shovels. Two coats. You got to dig yourself out of the shit. Get into the truth. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. a twist. Wow. And uh, what's her name? Uh, Eye Patch. Nadine. Nadine. Sitting there listening with that big grin on her face as though she's listening to a radio preacher. Yes. Like, like just, mm, yes. Thank yeah. you for giving us the good word. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, oh. that definitely felt like a critique of culture mm-hmm. in, some, in some form or fashion. Like, and that's a, it felt like a, sin, it felt sincere from Jacoby. Mm-hmm. That was a really cool balance of like, it's a sincere expression of character. So it doesn't feel out of character for Jacoby to do this. But it's also a critique of what I saw is, is American culture of this like gullibility or this kind of like need to cling to something. Yeah. And so we're just like, I'm reading a book called Fantasyland right now. Uh, I'd highly, highly recommend. But it's about America. It's basically the history of American gullibility Mm. and the ways in which we have created and ascribed to structures and institutions um, and people throughout our history. Uh, And this feels like one more step in fantasy land. So rather than face a truth, Nadine would rather listen to Dr. Amp. Yep. And and dig her way out of the shit. Doing the vamp. Dr. Ant. Yep. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I, I read an article, um, I think probably last year about this time, when um, uh, X-Files was coming back. And mm. talking about how the new X-Files, uh, this is before it came out, how the new X-Files will suck. Uh, and one of the reasons for it is it said, you know, we don't, we don't want conspiracy entertainment anymore. In the early 90s, trust in the government was kind of at its highest. That's about as good as things we're getting. Mm. Not that everyone necessarily trusted, uh, but the idea that there was a government conspiracy was kind of goofy. Um, and that was the fun of it. It was fantasy. And nowadays, all the conspiracy theories are either um, correct or weirdly super right-wing mm-hmm. and, and have gone a very different direction. Whereas back in the day, conspiracy theories could be a kind of bipartisan meeting um, yeah. between the left and the right. And so uh, that, that's what makes us uncomfortable with Dr. Amp. Uh, that's what, one of the things that makes me uncomfortable with him is uh, Jacoby is not Alex Jones, mm. but he kind of sounds like him. You know, so what, a little bit. what happened? And, and what makes it so that Nadine and uh, Jerry Horn can both listen? Well, Jerry Horn's got a great Wi-Fi. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's what enables him. It's just yeah. Wi-Fi. Yep. <laughs> Nathan's <laughs> got dial-up. We all know that, right? I mean, duh. She's she's still on that fifty-three hours of America online. Yeah, <laughs> has not used it all up. It'll, it'll soon expire, but she just uses it for the Doctor Amp shows. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else to to say about Twin Peaks episode five? It has my favorite shot so far. Oh, yeah. Uh, It has Amanda Seyfried. I'm 
might be mis- mispronouncing her name, but uh, Shelly's daughter, Becky, after she does cocaine with her boyfriend, there's a shot of her. She leans back in the, in the car as they're driving down the road. And it's this uncomfortable kind of like just set square on close up of Becky, uh, but just her eyes wide. And it, it really does feel like this exhilaration. And you don't know if it's going to like end suddenly because they crash the car. You don't know if it's going to like veer into a dream world, but it holds for this uncomfortably long time. But in, in its own way, it's also like very beautiful uh, because it is maybe that like it's a state of ecstasy, which in these episodes, in this return so far, like those moments, I don't know if that's happened yet. Yeah. Like there've been plenty of moments of darkness, of disturbance, of unsettling, of fear, of panic, but like sheer ecstasy. Yes. It's drug fueled. Yes. Her boyfriend is a loser, but to have 15 minutes of joy or 15 seconds of joy, that felt really beautiful. Love how you love me. Mm. Ah, it's it's such a gorgeous scene, and there's no illusion in that moment that the song is about her boyfriend. Yeah, um, it's she is in love with cocaine uh, in that moment, and mm-hmm. maybe in love with life and the universe for just a brief moment in her life that feels very shitty. Yeah, um, that it, that it's given her a moment uh, of real joy. Um, yeah, gorgeous, uh, heartbreaking shot. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thanks again for joining us on What Exactly Am I Watching Here? For next time, we're going to be working through Twin Peaks The Return Part 6. You can get a hold of us on Twitter, where our handle is at OverthinkPod. Find more at OverthinkPod.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter as at Helmstreet. Dom, where can people find you? On Twitter, uh, at Dominic underscore Lang, and Instagram, Dominic Lang. All right. Uh, until next time, the cow jumped over the moon. <laughs>